Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we pick up our study of John's Gospel as we consider the events following Jesus' crucifixion. If you recall, in the last podcast, we discussed Jesus' death on the cross as the revelation of God's true character and the scapegoat mechanism. Although Jesus' death is horrific, it marks a new beginning. Today, we will consider how this new beginning manifests itself in the lives of various people who were close to Jesus. Let's pick up the story now from John chapter 18, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and buried it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close and at hand, they laid Jesus there. We met Nicodemus in chapter 3 when he approached Jesus by night because he did not want the Jewish leaders to see him. Similar concerns plagued Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a secret disciple of Jesus. But in the wake of Jesus' death, these two men step out of the shadows into the light with a newfound confidence. The revelation of God's true character on the cross has inspired both these men to lay aside their ambitions of wealth and political power as they honour Jesus in his death. Their actions seem to parallel the woman who poured out the perfume at Jesus' feet earlier in John's Gospel, in preparation for his burial. Like this woman, Joseph and Nicodemus do a beautiful thing for Jesus as they give up their striving and straining on the mimetic treadmill to discover true life. Notice also the manner in which Jesus is buried. Criminals were often buried outside the city, away from the standard burial sites, so that they wouldn't defile the bodies of the dead. As they lay Jesus to rest inside the city, in a brand new tomb in which no one else had ever been buried, Joseph and Nicodemus seem unconcerned about any possible defilement caused by Jesus' corpse. To the contrary, Jesus is laid in a new tomb to ensure his corpse cannot be defiled by anyone else who had previously laid there. Through their actions, Joseph and Nicodemus declare Jesus' innocence. John also tells us that the tomb is located in a garden, which reminds us of the garden where Jesus took his disciples, where he talked and spent time with them. We mentioned this garden's function as a sacred space where the disciples could leave behind the stress and troubles of their everyday lives to find peace in God's presence. Perhaps John's mention here that the tomb was located in a garden emphasizes the sacred character of Jesus' burial site. As the story progresses, this sacred space will become the central to all the events that transpire. Reading on now, from chapter 20, verse 1. 
Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. The events described in this chapter begin on the first day of the week. We spoke earlier about how the opening chapters of John's Gospel are structured around a seven-day pattern, just like the seven-day creation week with which the Bible opens. The Gospel opens by introducing Jesus as God's creative wisdom which shines light into the darkness. The Bible opens with this first creative act also as light shines into the darkness on the first day of the creation week. Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week again signals a new beginning. Although the disciples are still living in darkness, with the dawn they experience new life. These things will never be the same again. When Mary tells the disciples that Jesus' body is missing, Peter and the other disciple run to check the tomb. The other disciple arrives first at the tomb, but is too timid to enter. He stands outside squinting as he attempts to peer into the dark tomb. Perhaps he does not want to defile himself by coming into contact with a dead body. Perhaps he is carefully checking for any danger such as grave robbers who may still be inside the tomb. In any case, he is cautious about entering the tomb, and understandably so. No one wants to enter the place of darkness and death. But this is the place where new life is conceived. This is the pattern of the resurrection. We must go through the processes of grief and loss to emerge from the darkness and find our way into the light. In contrast to the other disciple, Peter eventually arrives on the scene and he boldly barges into the tomb. It may have taken Peter a lot longer to get there, but once he arrives, he submits to the process of grief and loss. Through his example, the other disciple finds strength to embrace the reality which confronts them together. This detail reminds us that grief is a shared communal experience, something that we shouldn't experience alone in isolation. Often our culture will tell us to bottle our emotions up, to not express that grief, that sadness, to not cry out aloud, yell and wail. Even at a funeral, we'll expect a certain degree of decorum surrounding the ritual and ceremony. But in this example, we realize that we need to share our grief with one another. We can't do it alone. We shouldn't do it alone. As the disciples enter the tomb, they examine Jesus' grave clothes. Leaving expensive grave clothes and spices behind would seem a very odd move for grave robbers. In the midst of their darkness, confusion and chaos reign. 
they noticed the face cloth, which was carefully placed over Jesus' face, folded neatly in a separate place. Again, such care and attention suggests that grave robbers were not responsible for the body's disappearance. John tells us that the disciples did not consider the possibility that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Still dazed and confused, the disciples leave the tomb and wander back home. Having given themselves space to grieve and mourn in the place of darkness, the disciples eventually decide to resume their lives, even though everything has changed. All too often, we attempt to ignore our grief and loss by trying to carry on life as normal, but in the place of darkness, life can never be normal. The darkness of grief and loss is a sacred space which we need to enter and acknowledge. We can learn from these two disciples who find strength and courage to embrace and acknowledge their grief before moving on with their lives. Reading on now from verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary remains outside the tomb because she doesn't want to face the darkness of the tomb alone. Like the disciple who Jesus loved, she bends down to squint and catch a peek of the darkness. She doesn't want to face her grief alone. She peers into the tomb, and Mary is confronted by two daunting figures who invite her to enter the tomb and confront her grief and sorrow. But Mary refuses to confront her emotions, but refocuses her attention upon the conspicuous absence of Jesus' corpse. She turns around, determined to seek and find what has happened to Jesus' body. She believes that if she can just find his body, then she'll find closure. Then she'll be okay. Mary sets her mind to finding her new desired object, the object that will make her whole and complete again, Jesus' body. To her surprise, Mary is confronted by Jesus, alive and well, standing right there in front of her. Blinded by her quest to find Jesus' body, Mary becomes so focused on that desired object that she fails to recognize Jesus right there in that place. Yet Jesus cuts through the fog with a single word. By calling Mary's name, Jesus lets her know that she is not alone and that he is with her. Mary addresses Jesus by the title, Teacher. She longs to go back to that time, to that place before Jesus' crucifixion, where he taught and shared life and friendship with Mary and his disciples. But this time has passed, 
and it'll never come back again. Jesus cautions Mary, do not cling to me. In other words, Jesus is telling Mary, we cannot go back there. It'll, it's in the past. It's gone. It's finished. Now we're going forward and life will be different because Jesus has, is ascending to the Father. He instructs Mary to return to the other disciples so that she can process her emotions and grieve for Jesus in community with others. As the branches of the true vine, Jesus' disciples not only share the love and joy, but they also share each other's hurt, pain and grief. Reading on now from verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Notice again, John tells us that Jesus appears to the disciples on the first day of the week, suggesting a new creation is coming into being, as a different type of light shines into the darkness. Jesus' first words to his disciples are, Peace be with you. The Jewish idea of peace or shalom describes wholeness and completeness. The well-being described by shalom covers all areas of life, including mental, emotional, relational, financial, political, social, and physical. You could say that shalom encapsulates the idea of being complete and whole without any mimetic rivalry. Through these words, Jesus prays that his disciples will be complete and happy in every area of their life. Next, Jesus commissions the disciples to carry on his work and breathes on them saying, receive the Holy Spirit. In chapter one, John the baptizer identifies Jesus as the one upon whom the Spirit descends and rests. In other words, the Holy Spirit dwells with Jesus. And for this reason, Jesus can baptize others with that same Spirit. In John chapter 20 now, Jesus has been crucified. He has been risen from the dead and is now baptizing the disciples with the Spirit just as he promised. The idea being that Jesus is imparting the same Spirit which he received from the Father to the disciples that they might be empowered to continue his ministry. Jesus then returns to the theme of sin and forgiveness which we've seen throughout John's Gospel. As we discussed in an earlier podcast, people have the power to judge and forgive each other themselves. In this verse, Jesus assures the disciples that the buck stops with them. If they forgive anyone, they are forgiven. But if they refuse to forgive anyone, then that person is not forgiven. Although people often want to make forgiveness and judgment God's responsibility, John is placing the onus to forgive others back where it belongs, upon our very own shoulders. Reading on now from verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. One week later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you now believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So Thomas is not with the twelve the first time Jesus appears to them. You remember the doors were locked. So he doesn't believe that Jesus has really been raised from the dead. He wants hard truth. He wants evidence. Only if Thomas physically touches Jesus' wounds will he believe that Jesus has truly been resurrected. Jesus appears to Thomas and the rest of his disciples one week later, again just like the first occurrence. The doors are locked and Jesus appears in the midst of them and says, Peace be with you. The repetition here seems to suggest we're coming into another seven-day creation cycle which is beginning exactly the same way as the last one did. The only difference being that Thomas is now present. You see, the first experience was shared by all the disciples except for Thomas because he wasn't there. They experienced that new creation experience. Now, the same thing is happening again, but now Thomas is a part of it. And Thomas moves from a place of doubt to faith. It marks a new beginning for him. When Thomas submits to Jesus, as his Lord and God, Jesus says to those who believe without seeing such signs that they are blessed. These words nudge the reader, who's not an eyewitness of these signs, to believe and follow Jesus. For John, this means laying aside mimetic rivalry to experience true life as we become one with God and each other. Let's just take a moment to consider what it means for Thomas to declare that Jesus is his Lord and his God. In Jesus' day, Caesar called himself the Lord and Saviour of the world and even declared himself to be a God. So when Thomas tells Jesus that he is his Lord and God, it's an anti-empire sentiment. In other words, Thomas is opting out of the mimetic treadmill which the rest of the Roman Empire is on. He's opting out of the way of the world in which he's situated and he's opting instead for a different Lord and a different God. He's opting to follow Jesus and imitate him as he refuses to engage in mimetic rivalry. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.